King and our Savior, the Lord. He has no beginning. His love has no ending. He is the unprecedented God. Amen. If you have uh, elementary age kiddos, we would love them to be a part of what we have going on in our Vine Kids program. And right out that side door there, we'd love for them to participate. Like Jenny said, for some of you that may not have been in uh, worship during announcements, uh, next Sunday is our big Christmas service. All of our kids are going to be part of this uh, great Christmas extravaganza. And so if you have elementary age kids, please stick around. There's a small short uh, rehearsal. They're going to run through those speaking parts and get ready for next week. But next week's going to be a really fun and exciting time. I love that Christmas service. It's such a great journey of of scripture and song. And it's something we've been doing for all of our time together. So it's kind of really a special time for us. And so hopefully you can make next Sunday um, at 1030. We'd love to be a part of that. We are exploring Advent. We are into week three of uh, this journey of Advent. And as I've mentioned each week if we've done, as we've done this, Advent is the first four Sundays actually that lead up to Christmas. It's a time in the church in which we live with this sort of anticipation, this longing, this sort of deep understanding that God has both come and is coming again. We talk about the idea of there being two Advents. There's uh, literally a Latin word that means coming or arrival, the word Adventus, but there's two of them, right? There's the coming of the Christ child, which we celebrate at Christmas, which we're all familiar with. And then there's the promise of Christ's return, the second Advent. And so we live in both this fulfilled myth, this fulfillment and this anticipation of Christ's return. It's both this joy and longing, the celebration, but not yet. It is both the now and the not quite yet of the kingdom of God. And it's really an exciting time because we're not worshiping a baby that never grew into a man. We're not worshiping Jesus in the manger. We're worshiping Jesus, the incarnation, the embodiment of God and the person of Jesus Christ, breaking into humanity, growing fully to become Christ, to conquer death on the cross, be raised from the dead, and then promise that he will return again and make all things right. We celebrate this Christ child and the Christ man who died and was raised from the dead. And so Christmas, the gospel at Christmas is really the celebration of all those things. Oftentimes we forget and we think it's just about remembering what happened on that, that Middle Eastern night all those years ago. But the reality is Jesus is no longer in the manger. We celebrate that great truth. And so we've been exploring Advent through the lens of Isaiah 9. We've been looking at these names, these titles that have been given to this God King, this incarnation, this Messiah that's to come, and exploring the attributes theologically of what that means about Jesus. And so we've been using Isaiah 9 as a background. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about this in depth, and you can go back and listen to it um, if you'd like. But it's a crazy time in Israel's life. They are living in direct disobedience. They are wandering from the Lord. They're following a king named Ahaz who was not righteous. He was living his own path in his own way. The people had returned their rebellious hearts toward the Lord. And the Lord is using Isaiah to bring about a, a kind of a messianic word that says things are about to go really sideways for you. And they're already dark, but you are entering a time of deep, deep darkness. And Isaiah 9 is both that proclamation and the reality that there is still hope. That in Christ, this Messiah, this Christ child, there will be new life and new hope. And that's what we've been exploring over this 
series. So what we're going to do today is we're going to back up. We're going to look at Isaiah 9 just so you can get the framework for it. And then we're going to explore the third name or titles that are given to this Messiah, this Christ, this coming King. And that is the title, Everlasting Father. And so we'll take a look at that together. So if you've got your Bible, why don't you open up to Isaiah 9. We're going to revisit that for just a moment, and then we will dive into our text this morning, or a few texts actually will be in this morning. But let's take a moment, let's pray together. Lord, we do stand here or sit here this morning overwhelmed by the reality that not one of us deserve your mercy or your grace. That is just true. Lord, we do not uh, in any shape or form deserve the way that you love us or redeem us. Like Israel, in those times we have chosen ourself over you. We have turned our hearts away from you. We have let sin wrangle in our soul too long. But yet, God, in your infinite, incredible grace, you exchanged our darkness for light, our sorrow for joy, our oppression for freedom in Christ. And this morning, what we do is we celebrate in worship. We open your word and we do things like communion. We celebrate the fact that Christ has come and he has risen from the dead. And that he has given us reason to love and to worship and to sing and to dance and to draw breath. And so this morning, Lord, as we look at these titles that Christ has given, we're reminded of the incredible nature that he brought to this earth, that the incarnation, the inbreaking of heaven and earth, the light piercing the darkness, Lord, was about rescuing, that you came for us, and not one of us deserves that. And so this morning, as we open your word and we just study a little bit together, Lord, remind us just how much you loved us. Take a moment in your own heart as you sit here this morning. As you prepare to open God's word and we prepare to just spend a little bit of time unpacking sort of the nature of the heartbeat of God. And just ask the Lord to teach you. Whatever that might mean or however you want to whisper those things or say those things to the Lord, just ask the Lord to teach your heart. Whatever you might need to cut loose of or let go of or confess or whatever it is, just let those things spill from your heart and ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Take a moment and uh, pray for the people around you, maybe somebody beside you or in front of you. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. And so take a moment and just pray for them. Pray that God would move in them. Maybe it's your husband or your spouse or, or maybe you fought on the way here and you need to ask for forgiveness or you need to let something go. Or, or maybe you just want the person next to you to meet Jesus for the first time. Or maybe you don't even know their name. Just be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday is not about you. Rejoice with your brothers and sisters as they encounter Christ and pray for them. Lord, we come to you this morning with open hearts. We don't invite you into this place. We know you're here. There's nowhere that we can go to escape from your presence. You are in the very air that we breathe. And so we just relinquish our hearts to you. We just ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would teach our hearts, that you would reveal truth. You are the great teacher. Nothing in the world that I say matters. Everything that you do does. And so, Lord, we pray that you would move in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So there were crazy, crazy, difficult, hard days. And Isaiah 8 is actually a picture of that difficulty. And mainly because Israel had chosen to basically pursue themselves. They are chasing their own path and their own way. They are following a king who does not follow the Lord. And they have created idols and they are worshiping those idols. And it is breaking the heart of God and God is going to correct it. 
And you get a sense of what's happening at the end of uh, verse uh, or chapter 8. Then I'll move into uh, 9. When you hear the desperation that's going on, he basically says, listen, the people have consulted mediums and spiritualists. They've turned from God. He said, to the law and to the testimony, they do not speak according to the word. They have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. They and their families will become enraged. Looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. And they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. This is what Isaiah is telling the people of Israel. He's saying, this is the direction you're headed and it will happen. Darkness is coming. You're already living in it. There is fear and there is gloom. And this is what the future holds for you. And they were dark, dark days. But chapter 9 is a word of hope in the middle of that darkness. It's that God has not given up on you. He is actually moving to provide a redemptive way out. And we know this to be true because this is the movement in all of redemptive history. That God is still in pursuit of creation that he made. and He breathed life into. He is in pursuit of Israel as the direction that his redemption would come from those very lines. So God in the same breath through Isaiah says this. Nevertheless, in other words, in all those things that have transpired, in all the darkness and fearful gloom that is coming, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, right, we have humbled. We have come the future. We will honor Galilee. And he says this in verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, new light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice in the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing plunder. For you, as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. The bar across their shoulders, a rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of this government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So all that to say, in the middle of this darkness and fearful gloom, God says, however, nevertheless, there is a way. And that way is actually coming on the shoulders of a child. My redemptive plan for all of humanity will rest on a child, and he will take you from literally darkness to light, from sorrow to joy, from oppression to freedom. He lists those things in those verses, that you are going from these places because of this child, this Messiah child. And there's some special attributes that you, I want you to understand about he who is coming. And over the past two weeks, we've looked at the first two. We talked about the idea of Jesus as wonderful counselor. And not so much the idea of wonderful in terms of awe-inspiring, but the actual word there that means the miraculous. That God himself in the form of Jesus is the actual wonder, the miracle maker, the wondrous counselor. And counselor isn't a therapist as we talked about, right? Remember, counselor is the, the part of our kingdom reign. You know, every earthly king has needed a counsel, has needed people that would speak wisdom. But Christ will, know, will need no earthly wisdom. He will need no earthly counselor. He himself is sufficiently king. And so he is the wonder, the wondrous, the miraculous king that will reign. We also talked last week about Christ being mighty God. 
The idea that all these titles point to the reality that Jesus is the incarnation. The incarnation, by definition, is the embodiment of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is God. All of our study of John chapter, uh, all of John actually, but our entire study of John chapter 1 pointed us to this picture a few years ago when we went through John, right? That the Word became flesh, that Jesus is the Word of God. He is God. And not only is He God, but He is mighty. And last week we explored that idea of that mighty, that translation of that word actually means valiant hero or warrior. So what we have is not God in the sense of God is big, mighty. We have mighty in the sense of God is valiant hero and warrior. And we talked about the imagery of that in reality, the idea that God came to fight for you. That's why Christ came. He came to do battle for you, to be victorious over sin and death that we shouldn't shy away from the idea of God as warrior because that's exactly what God came to do. That there is oppression and darkness and there is a war being waged and Christ came and was victorious. And that battle, right, culminated in his life and hit a climactic point with his death and then victorious in his resurrection. And it says that Jesus conquered death once and for all. In our culture today, we shy away from words like warrior and battle and fighting the reality is that they're incredibly biblical terms when we talk about Jesus. He is the warrior God, and he has defeated sin and death for you. Do not shy away from the idea that Christ is a warrior, right? He is not some purely wandering, weak picture of God who just does nice things for people. The reality is, is that Christ came to do battle, ultimate battle, against the evil one, and reigned victorious. He is a conquering God. He is a warrior God. And so we look at those two. And then this morning, briefly, we're going to be looking at that third one, this idea of everlasting father. So these are the titles that are given to this coming hope in the world, this Messiah child, the incarnation, right? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, and everlasting father. So if you look at that word, as we look at the past two, there's, there's two words there. The past two weeks look at the same thing, two words, everlasting Father. And everlasting is a pretty easy one to kind of recognize, right? Because this is the eternal nature of God. It is everlasting God or eternal God. And verse 7 actually points to that reality very strongly. In verse 7, he says this about this Christ child. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So it will be a time without end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So here's what we know about this coming Christ child, that he is coming and that he will reign and that his reign will be everlasting. He will reign on David's throne forever and his kingdom will know no end. So automatically we know that there is something incredibly different about this child. This is no ordinary child, right? We talked about the depth of Jesus, but this is not just the birth of a human. This is God, the incarnation, and therefore this Christ child, this Messiah, will have an eternal nature to his reign. In other words, the kingdom of David will all forever be his, and it will last forever. Now for the Israelites, this is a powerful word, right? Because they're living under the rule of a god who was take, or a king who was taking them a different direction. They have seen many kings that have led them astray. Some have been godly, some have been not. But they've all missed in terms of their leading forward in the godly nature in the line of David. 
And what Isaiah is telling us is that this king is coming from that kingly line, but will have no other kings. There will be no end to his reign. He is eternal, and that reign will never, ever end. And how is this going to happen? Like, how can this child reign forever, right? If you're hearing these words, you're thinking, well, surely this king will die, like all other kings. If he is being raised to the line of David, he soon will pass. And Isaiah is saying, actually, he will not pass. He will reign forever, and the zeal or the miraculous move of God will accomplish this. In other words, it will be not by human hands. It is because the zeal of God will bring it about. His reign will last forever. Now, here's the thing. I find these, this idea incredibly comforting because that tells us that no matter what happens in this world, right, no matter what pandemic happens, no matter what political party is in charge, no matter what unfolds in your life, no matter how difficult those things be, there is never one day, not one moment, not one breath where Christ is not seated on the throne of God, where Jesus is not absolutely and fully in everlasting control, and where he is not reigning supreme. So we have no reason to panic when the world brings the things the world brings. We have no reason to believe that all of the things that are unfolding in our world are toppling the everlasting reign of Christ the King, period. For believers, the world can bring what it may, but it will not dethrone the King. And this is incredibly comforting to my heart because we look around the landscape and it feels at times like the world's on fire, right? I mean, you look at the past couple of years, just look at the way things have unfolded. People against people, nations against nations, sickness coming and going, not knowing where we can buy toilet paper, whatever it is. Like it's coming unglued or it feels that way at least. And it's not new. This has been happening for millennia. We're not the first part of history that's going, man, things feel really out of control. If you actually know history at all, the world has been unstable for millennia. It has been unstable century after century, moment after moment. We just choose not to see it at times because it doesn't directly affect us. You think the world is an unstable the years before these? Go to a place like Darfur or other places where genocide is taking place and oppressive governments and things are happening and slavery is existing in unprecedented numbers around the world. Human trafficking, just list the things. You just choose to put your head under a rock. And then when it affects you because you can't buy toilet paper, we go, oh my God, the world's on fire. No, it's been on fire. But the reality is at every moment and all throughout human history, God is fully in control and is working things for his glory and his good always. And he has not forgotten you. Because he is everlasting and he is the eternal king. And this world is just that. It is a temporary world. It does not hold all of your hope. If you are looking for the hope for your soul and the joy for your life in this world, you will be disappointed forever. So here's the deal, right? What we rest on is this fact that Christ is eternal, that he is king. For years, I carried the program of my dad's funeral in my pocket of my suit. Yeah, I have one suit. Get over it, right? I don't ever wear it. I'm not even sure it fits. But I carried a program in the pocket of my suit. And every time I put it on, whether it's a funeral or a wedding or whatever it was I was doing, I would pull it out. It's been 20-something years now. And I carried it around not to remind me that my dad was dead, right? That was, that every single day I, I live in that reality. There's things I wish I could tell him, ask him about. There's things I wish he could see. 
I know that. I'm fully aware. But I carried it around to remind myself that my God is eternal. And that death does not win. And it is not victorious. And that Christ is eternal king. And that's what we're hearing about in Isaiah is that this reign that comes on the line of David will know no end. And you know how it's going to know no end? is because it's not that the people are going to uphold it. It's because the zeal of Almighty God will make it happen. In other words, the miraculous birth of Christ is going to be supported by the miraculous move of Christ because God is the wondrous miracle himself. Christ is king eternal. Don't let anything in this world, right, topple that hope for you. I don't care what your financial struggles are, what your marital status is, how difficult things may be at work, whatever may be unfolding around you, nothing will dethrone Christ. He still sits upon that throne. So anchor your heart and hope to him, is what Isaiah is saying. No matter how dark the days get, there's hope. Why? Because Jesus is king. And he is eternal king. So in that, we also get this other title that's ascribed to this idea of eternal or everlasting or never-ending. And it's the word Father, right? He is the everlasting Father. Now, at first glance, you may think, that's kind of weird, right? I mean, we're talking about Jesus. So is Jesus the Father? Are Jesus and the Father the same? Is, is the, the Father just a mode of God and Jesus just a mode of God and the Spirit just a, it's, Somewhat confusing if you look at it. And the truth of that is that it's not actually that complicated, but it's extremely complicated. Because Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not Jesus. Jesus is not the Son. Or Jesus is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. They are not different modes of being. The early church did away with that heresy. It's called modalism. They threw it out. The idea is that God exists perfectly in three co-equal yet different persons. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. And so what we see in Christ is this incredible kind of revelation of God the Father, but not the Father himself. In other words, Jesus isn't the Father. The Father didn't die on the cross. But Jesus is the revelation of the Father. And we look at that word, we see it kind of giving us, or at least the way I see it, giving us and communicating to us three really distinct things. That first one is the idea of, of, the, first one is the idea of rule. So if we look at Christ as eternal father, as the word expresses, it really brings about this idea of, of rule, of sort of a kingdom heir. Because in the Old Testament, oftentimes kings were refer, ref, uh, referred to as uh, monarchs, earthly fathers. They were leaders and shepherds. They were people that would give direction to their entire community. They were not just the ones that were pronounced political power, but they were ones that would lead the way. They shepherded people. They guided them. In fact, they cared for them. If the people died under a kingdom or under a king, the king took it personally. He, if he was a good king, cared deeply for his people. And it carries about this idea of rule, of power, that Christ is coming as the eternal monarch, as the one that will rule on the throne. He is carrying with him this fatherly, shepherdly role that will be a leader of a nation that would become a people, that would become you and would become me. And a lot of the problem with that idea of father is that we transfer those titles and most of us have broken pictures of our own relationships with our dads. But Christ in everything that he does is the perfect picture of a father's love. He is the incredible picture of what that looks like, Right? He is not aloof. He is not distant. He is not emotionally distracted. 
He is not at work more than he's here. He's not a lot of the things that most of us have ascribed at times to our dads. Man, some of us honestly don't have a great picture of our dad or didn't know our dad or whatever. And some of us, like myself, have a great picture of our dad that's probably a little bit inaccurate because we have a great way to do this sort of redactive history. Right? I forget all my dad's flaws because I do love him so much. But he wasn't a perfect man. By far, he wasn't a perfect man. But Christ, in all of his ways, is the perfect eternal king and leader and ruler and shepherd and guider of souls. And that's essentially what Isaiah is saying. Ahaz, this really cruddy king that you have who has chosen to not follow the Lord, is a terrible example of an earthly and eternal ruler. He is neither. But Christ, the king, the father, will not only be the monarch, the leader, the king that will last forever, but he will do it perfectly as a father does. He will care for you and he will shepherd you and he will lead you and he will never fail you. The perfect representation of a father that leads both with strong hand and strong heart. And so the first picture we get of this idea of father is this idea of rule. That Christ is in charge. He's everlasting in that way and he never that rule will never end. He is the perfect, eternal, everlasting king, dependable, strong, wise, caring, as we'll see in a moment. It carries this idea of rule. It also carries this idea of revelation. What we know from the New Testament is this, is that we know the Father because we know the Son. That Jesus, in all of his kind of beautiful glory is the exact representation of God the Father, meaning that everything we get to know about God, we see in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know this to be true? Well, John actually has this recorded. He has this great conversation Jesus does with Thomas. And they're all a little bit confused because Jesus has told them that he's no longer going to be with them. He's going to go and prepare a place for them. And they're still trying to put a picture together going, what do you mean? Is he going to come back? And Jesus is talking about his death and his resurrection. And they think he's just going to leave. And so they're all trying to figure out what's going on. But Jesus is having this this conversation saying, I am going and I'm going to prepare a place. And I'm going to show you what's waiting for you. And this is the conversation that he has in 14.5. He says, Thomas says to him, he says, Lord, how do we know where you're going? You say you're going to leave. How do we know where you're going? How do we know the way to get there? Jesus says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And then Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Like, show us the Father. And Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been with you for such a long time, anyone who has seen uh, me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father. What we know from Scripture is that Christ is the perfect revelation of God the Father. Meaning the way that we see Jesus interact with people, that love, that kindness, that compassion, that challenge, that drive, that all of those things are the manifestation of God himself. They are the revelation of the Father. In other words, Jesus just isn't a gate. He isn't just an access point to which we get to be with and see the Father. Jesus is the revelation of God himself. That means that an encounter with Christ is an encounter with the Father. And these are deep, complicated theological things. But they're really important. Because Jesus isn't a separate God. He is fully the revelation of the Father. And what the Jewish guys were longing for, Philip and Thomas, is they were saying, hey, if you're going to lead us, Take us home. Take us to the Father. And Jesus says, I am home. 
And you're seeing the Father. Because everything that I am is who he is. I am the image of God. I am God. I am a representation and the revelation, both in one, of God the Father. And this is really important for you and for for me as well, because what we have to understand that in Christ, we have full access to holy, majestic, mighty Father God. In other words, there is no one that ever has to go between you and the Lord. You do not need a mediator outside of Christ. You do not need a priest. You do not need to go between those things. You do not need someone to pray on your behalf. You do not need to pray for saints. You do not need to go to confession to a human. You have access to holy God through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the revelation of the Father, and in him we have access to all that God is. There is nothing that is withheld. Now, this is a mind blower for the Jewish people. It's a mind blower because God was, and the Father was fully inaccessible before Christ, except by one person, possibly on one day of the year, in all of God's holiness, coming to get grips with all of humans' sinfulness was a dangerous thing. And yet in Christ, because he is the one that takes us from darkness to light, from sorrow to joy, from oppression to freedom, in Christ there is hope and Christ conquers death and is raised from the dead. And in that victory, we have access to holy, majestic, mighty Father God who is revealed fully in the person of Jesus Christ. That means in your relationship with Jesus, you have access to the full fatherly, eternal love of God. There is no other in-between, go-between you will ever need. And this is incredibly important because that means religion won't get you there. It means your posturing won't get you there. Your performance won't get you there. All the things that you try and do to make God think you're working hard won't get you there. The only opportunity that we have is faith in Jesus Christ, the Son, who is the full revelation of the Father, and we have access to that. And that is why the Christmas gospel is so incredible. is because Jesus gives us access to all that God is. That when we come in contact with Christ, we're coming in contact with the fullness of the Father. And so it's this picture of rule. It's this picture of revelation. And it's also a picture of compassion and tenderness. I mean, that's the role that a father truly plays is this idea of compassion and tenderness. And that's one of the great attributes of a father God who leads well, is that he leads with strong hand and wisdom, but he leads with compassion and tenderness, and he cares so deeply for his children. All of creation points to this reality, that God created the world, breathed life into your lungs, as Psalm 139 tells us, formed you together in your mother's womb, made you and made no accidents, and didn't give up on you, knows all that you are, all that you've done, all the mistakes that you've made, all of the disastrous things you brought in this place, and loves you and wants to redeem you in Christ anyway. It's the beautiful picture of a compassionate father. My favorite picture of all scripture of this is Psalm 103. We talk about the compassion of a God father. This is what he says. Praise The Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives your sins and heals your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion? Who satisfies a desire with good things, your desire with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? The Lord works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. 
He has made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse. He will not harbor anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or pay us according to our iniquities. Right? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, is so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. Listen to verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The idea of God, protector, God, father, is this idea of fatherly tenderness and love and affection. Who does all these things for you? Who does them all? Your father does. And that role in scripture is incredibly important. He is the one that fights your oppressors. He is the one that comes and does battle. He is the one that will not take your sin and hold it against you. He is the one that when your worst comes out, he knows who you are and loves you in spite of that. Even when you make those mistakes, even when you're fully exposed to the entire world, your perfect father does not walk out on you. Now our human relationships have betrayed us. But in a beautiful, perfect picture, this is what a father does. He defends and he fights and he protects and he cares and he longs and he loves. And he is compassionate and he is gracious and he does not treat you as you deserve. He does not make you perform for his love. He does not make you earn it. He does not lord power of you. He does not hold anger against you. All these things that our worldly parents have done and that I do as a worldly parent, God does not. He is the beautiful and perfect representation of compassion and tenderness and strength. And he is our God. He is our shepherd. He is the one that leads us. These images are all over scripture. That's just my favorite. The idea of God's shepherd is incredible, right? That he fights off lions and bears and literally as Jesus pursues the lost sheep as shepherd father, right? Carries it home. And instead of berating the sheep saying, why did you wander it? He calls all the neighbors over and he says, we are celebrating. This is a picture of a God who knows you wander and still wants to redeem you. That means that your deepest sin that you're sitting with in here today, right? In Christ as we just read, is as far as the east is from the west, is separated because Christ has come and victoriously as warrior God defeated the enemy, opening the floodgates to eternal Father's love, tenderness, and compassion. That his anger will not last forever. Why? Because it will come to rest on Christ. He will become the atoning sacrifice and the fullness of God's compassion and tenderness is going to be displayed in the revelation and rule of Jesus. Now, these are complicated, deep theological things, but if you just look at them at the surface, they're just stinking incredible. That we have a God whose reign will know no end. Nothing on this earth will ever distract that. I don't care who gets elected. I don't care who comes in power. I don't care what begins to unfold. I don't care what's happening around you. I don't care what's going on in your marriage or in your financial world. I don't care because they will not distract the rule of God. Now, of course, I care about them in terms of how to hurt your heart, but they will not Remove God from his place of supreme sufficiency and authority and rule. He is still God. So part of us gets to rest in that. We also learn in the midst of that, that he is a father God who cares and who loves and who longs. And that is made known through the title everlasting father that Jesus rules as this everlasting beautiful monarch 
who leads with compassion and tenderness and is a revelation of God himself. So whatever broken relationship you have with your own father or whatever you're trying to be as one as your own, you have the most beautiful and perfect example of unconditional tenderness and compassion in Christ. He is the model of beauty. And this is our promise that God not only is going to be wonderful counselor, the wondrous, miraculous leader God, that he's not only going to be the warrior God, right? The God that comes and fights our battles and defeats the enemy and has come for us. But in the middle of that strength, in the middle of that power, in a rule that will know no end, he demonstrates to our hearts what we truly need, which is, I can trust that the rule that I'm under is good, that his rule is right, and that he is just. And I can trust that he is, Jesus is the revelation of all that I long for in a father, in wisdom, and tenderness, and compassion. And as we'll talk briefly about next week, because we'll have our big Christmas service, Jesus also is coming in as the Prince of Peace. And not peace in terms of, let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya, but peace in terms of the turmoil that we face in this world, spiritually and otherwise, is laid to rest in Christ. And he is the Prince, the coming heir, the reality that is ours. You know, this table that we celebrate each once a month is a perfect picture of this sort of manifestation of Christ. It is the invitation of the Father through Jesus. And that's really what we have. We have this great invitation that comes from God the Father through the Son. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, his given Son, so that we might have eternal life. If we truly trust in him, we might have eternal life to live in this redemptive movement of God. On that very night that he was betrayed, on the night that Jesus would be basically abandoned by everybody he cared about, on that very night which he would go and live into the definition of warrior God, that he would go to battle with sin and death and reign victorious, he took bread and after giving thanks, he said, this bread is my body and it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took bread, he took the cup, and he said, This cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. And that as long as we take of this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again. We celebrate communion not as a means of habit, not as a means of something we do each month as part of our worship experience. We celebrate communion as a command from God to remember and proclaim the things that are coming, not just to look back, but to look forward. Paul tells us that we should examine our hearts thoroughly before we take it, that we should confess our sins and come pure because what's happening here is something amazingly miraculous. This is a reminder of all that God has done and has promised to do in Christ. It is the fulfillment of these passages that we read in Isaiah this is Christ's body poured out and broken as wonderful counselor, mighty warrior God, and everlasting Father. This morning we're taking communion by means of intinction, which means as you come down, we'll have a station in the front and the back, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. We invite you to return to your seat and remain standing as we worship the Lord together. If you do have a gluten issue with the body of Christ, we got gluten-free Jesus up here. So.
Um, I'm going to invite our elders to come forward so we can serve, and then we will pray together and dive into communion and worship. But let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather this morning and worship, to celebrate communion, all that you are, all that you promise. Lord, we ask that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and that you would do something miraculously wonderful in our life and in our heart, that you would remind us of your great promise and that you are wonderful counselor, warrior God, everlasting Father. And as we celebrate this meal together, we not only are reminded of those things, but we're knit together. Communion is done as community. It is a community meal in which the church gathers together to make the proclamation of all that Christ is, to remember what he has done for us and to celebrate the promise of what is to come. So Lord, as we celebrate this meal together and close our time in worship, empower our hearts, reminding us and showing us that through Christ, we do have access to you, Father God, that he is the revelation of all that is good, and the Lord, he is king. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. We invite you to come forward as you feel led and then remain standing and let's worship together. Do it. 
pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to celebrate and to worship and to open your word. We recognize this is an incredible and great privilege that we get as a community. Uh, It's not something we have to do, but Lord, it's something we're allowed to do and get to do that you deserve and demand our worship because you are in fact God. Lord, we ask that as we celebrate communion today, Lord, you will remind us of these incredible truths that we have seen in Isaiah 9. They will be reminded, Lord, of this promise that you've given us, that you are the one in which all hope is built upon. Lord, that you are the light in the darkness, the joy in the sorrow, the freedom to our oppression. Lord, that you are victory, that you are God, that you are wonderful counselor. Lord, that you are mighty God, that you are everlasting Father, and that you are Prince of Peace. And as we close our time in worship, may those words and verses ring so true in our life that no matter what this world brings, that you have given us hope in Christ. Lord, that he is the beautiful, perfect, miraculous ruler. Lord, that he is the warrior that comes to fight not only for us, but one for us. And that, God, he is the promise of the everlasting Father, the revelation of all that you are. That to have an encounter with Christ is to have an encounter with you. And, Lord, his picture of rule and revelation and tenderness and compassion is alive. And so, Lord, as we close our time in worship, may those things ring true as we celebrate and sing to the God who has come for us. This is Advent. Lord, it is the promise of what has come and what is coming. And your people, the church, we rejoice. Let's stand and close our time in worship, celebrating these truths to be real. You are healing for 
Amen. That's our deep prayer is that we'd walk out of here with those verses empowered us. He's the anchor of souls for the heart of men like God is these things. This is the promise of Isaiah 9 that we have a God who so pursued us that he sent his son Jesus that we might be redeemed and rescued. And this is Advent. Go in peace.